0: Welcome to the Adaptive Executive Podcast, where we meet with senior executives and discuss how to keep yourself and your organization adaptive and your employees engaged. My name is Greg Ballard, founder and owner of 5C Consultant, and I am your host. If you'd like to be considered as a guest for this podcast, you can apply on our website at 5C.Consulting. Look for the word podcast. For now, let's dive into the show. All right, welcome back to the Adaptive Executive. I'm your host, Greg Ballard, and I have a very special guest, uh, Paul Rupert. And uh, Paul, welcome to the show today. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little about uh, the work, some of the work you've done to date.
1: Okay, my pleasure to be here, Greg, first and foremost, to be able to talk to you as well as um, share some ideas and a good conversation with your listeners as well. So uh, I'm Paul Rupert, and I have 20 years experience in the telecoms, media, and technology space. Uh, I've created exceptional results as a commercial leader, a growth strategist, a product innovator, as well as a marketing driver at the forefront of something that we all use every day all around the world, which is the SMS industry. Um, It's something fairly obscure, but also very, very, very large. Uh, I've been characterized as being an ambidextrous executive, meaning I have domain-spanning perspectives as a result of uh, talent mixing and domain hopping, for example, between the federal and policy arena, as well as the private sector, as well as being involved in both startups. some failing, some phenomenally successful uh, versus enterprise entities that I've been involved in, as well as being um, a seller and a buyer in the context of doing business. And then last is sales versus everyone else, if you want to characterize as that as because I've I've run large commercial entities. So great to be here. No,
0: no, fantastic to have you. And you know let's unpack this just a little bit for our listeners about the the work you're doing right now, which is you know really helping support with consulting and strategy, uh, particularly on the CPaaS systems a uh, communic- communications platform as a service. Unpack that a little bit tell us can sure. you give us a a framework or an an example of what that actually is
1: yeah from the um, the consumer perspective. What goes on in a day-to-day basis when, for example, you've been notarized or notified of uh, a flight being delayed, or you've gone into Google and it's asking you for what's called a two-factor authentication, which is essentially to validate you being who you are. Well, there's an entire network of connections as well as providers that allows that to happen, especially on an international basis because the telecommunications business uh, and the telecommunication network. on a global scale is probably the most complicated machine ever created by man. And it's organic. It's constantly changing relative to new types of technologies and new types of solutions that are added onto that. So I'm in the space that allows you to be able to receive that notification and have it sent to any place around the world. And when we're talking about now, which is a new evolution in these platforms, as they're called, which is, as you said earlier, communications platforms as a service, that incorporates not only text messaging, but also voice. So if you were to use a telephone call now, especially in the context of the pandemic, where there's now a shift to utilizing video, but also things that people are utilizing on a day-to-day basis a little bit differently all around the world. If you've ever heard of WhatsApp, you probably have, or WeChat, which is based in China, or Kakao, or Line, which is primarily Asian, what are called OTT players, or Vibers, which is very prominent in the U.S., um... And then incorporating as well basic email. So there are these entities that are now emerging in the telecommunications segment that that provide connectivity and manage of that management of that connectivity across all of those platforms. Hence, communications platforms as a service. And who do my clients um, sell to? Well, they're primarily enterprises, so American Express, United Airlines, but it could also be your local Domino's Pizza. In terms of the um, uh, the concessions in the region, if you will, or even down to your hair salon stylist or your dentist utilizing one of these platforms to notify you of, um, you know, as I mentioned, your alerts, notifications, etc. It's that spanning. And just as a measure um, of scale and size. There are very few economic units that are measured in the teens of trillions of production on an annualized basis, but that's how many messages, text messages are sent globally,
0: annually. So, wow, that's a, that's a lot there. So if I'm capturing it kind of as a layperson here, you guys, uh, the, the CPA, the CPAS systems are really the infrastructure for mass communications via text.
1: That's correct. And it's all in the cloud. It's all oh migrating God. towards the cloud as opposed to the old days, which were literally physical connections
0: yeah, so this so as I'm listening to the work that you're doing and the people you're working with uh some questions that come up to my mind really you know kind of framing it around being an adaptive executive, being an adaptive organization and with technology and software um you know advancing so fast so quickly it's its life cycle is is really really short what is the strategy horizon? So how far out do you think with your clients on you know, yeah. designing a strategy? Is it three months? Is it 18 months? Um, yeah,
1: it's a great question. And I'll just give you a little story from my own background. I got into this business in the mid-90s, in 1997, I helped launch one of the first, what's called a GSM operator in the U.S. You know it today as, after rebranding and, and a number of different acquisitions, as AT&T Wireless. And coming into that job, um, I'm not a technologist, but I'm a commercial guy. And I got this opportunity um, to help build out business development initiatives and then moved into product and one of the first exercises I was given was to do a, a a business case analysis on a 10-year basis for a company that was only two years old in a technology that was less than five years old. <laughs> 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 and I had to literally, literally, thankfully, I had had prior, let's say, um, mid-management experience as well as other dynamics in my past where I was like, That's ridiculous uh, in the context of looking at this in that kind of far edged perspective. And um, as I mentioned earlier, the dynamics of change are so fast. That uh, I operate when I was inside in an executive in one of these executive as an executive in one of these companies, we were looking at eighteen months to three years out in terms of long term planning. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, relative to the type of projects that I'm engaged in, they're usually about six months, but they've gone as long as fifteen months, where I become embedded into the company, um, you know, essentially being a a substitute or a uh, an executive on loan to these companies. And the type of work that I do most recently has been really focusing on mergers and acquisitions, developing corporate thesis on uh, be able to acquire other opportunities, both directly or indirectly. Meaning, uh, directly in the context of the industry, meaning a competitor, or what's called a strategic acquisition, or potentially a financial acquisition, or additionally into an adjacent realm that you might be able to. Tuck in the technology, or tuck in the market, whatever it might be, um, that would then be able to add to your overall value proposition.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. It's interesting what you said, though. And I'm going to kind of pull a couple bullet points out of there. Is when you started, this was kind of like you're looking at a three year uh, horizon for strategy and planning, right? Because technology was evolving, and now you mentioned like six months to eighteen months. And I'm wondering, is that going to continue? Is the speed of technology going to continue to incrementally get faster, or are we at a, are we going to hit a point where it will slow down again? Well, you
1: know, that all depends on the type of industry that you're in, because there are certain developmental cycles that take a long time. Um, and even in the context, as I was talking about, 18 months to three years in terms of the horizon, the planning horizon, um, the other aspect of this, for example, is the sales cycle, because these are very complicated sales. Um, that you are in some cases selling into a mobile network operator into what is called their core network. And their core network is essentially how um, the reliability of the dial tone, meaning that it works regardless of what's going on um, that you'll always be able to utilize your mobile phone based on, you know, certain parameters. And so because of that sales cycle, sometimes that might last uh, nine months to two years, depending on who you're selling to. If I was a product development director inside AT&T today, it would probably be an eight month, 18 month sales cycle. Um, So, My point there is that you've got structural limitations, let's say structural friction points. But more importantly, the bottom line here is that uh, there's a human factor analysis in the context of how fast can we as human beings adapt to these changes. Um, And therefore, there's not a constant compression relative to the planning cycles, because at some point you become overwhelmed and becoming overwhelmed means means that you no longer have any control. You have any no longer have any sense of what your risk horizon may be or your opportunity horizon might be. It just comes too fast at you. And implicitly in that means failure because if you don't have any means of control, um you have lost any uh, planning capabilities and most importantly execution possibilities relative to those plans. So Yes, we things things are moving quickly, but there's going to be a, um, a like I say, a human factors analysis is going to s- slow things down at some point.
0: Yeah. So the technology, the speed. What I'm hearing you say is the speed of technology isn't the limiter; it's the human, uh, the human element, and our capac and our capacity to uh, adapt quickly enough. Um, you know, for the market, and so to keep up yeah. with the technology changes. And even in that regard, so just to cap that that
1: conversation that that line of the conversation um, messaging, for example, text messaging, which is a basic originally 160 characters that we all utilize almost like little class notes and pass to each other every day. Um, that functionality and a business and service has been around for over 20 years now. And mm-hmm. um, many of my clients are investment arms and consultants who are looking at what's the long-term Potential of the business and new technologies that might overturn um, and make this obsolescent. well, the reality is that, as I mentioned earlier, you know teens of trillions of economic units don 't just disappear in the course of two to three to five years, and because they 're back to human. Behavior, there's such a high convenience factor in all of this that that hasn't been displaced by something new like video. That's just not happening. Um, we still need to have that text messaging capability in so many different ways. If anything, it will erode over time. But how long that might take could take 20 years.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you think about some some things stick around for a long time. I mean, we still use DVDs from time to time. Um, before that, there was VHS. I don't. Th- I think we got <laughs> yeah. rid of all of our VHS, right? Or the um,
1: internal combustion engine. You know. <laughs> you know. Let's go much bigger than that. Pretty,
0: yeah, that's still around <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so this is a good segue, Paul, because really, what I want to take our conversation is into. You know, you're on the front lines. You're working with some really top, some large organizations, global organizations. You know, folks that are doing some really big things in the world, and. You know, there's two parts to this question. So we'll pick one, we'll go into it, and then we'll come back to the other. And the first one is, is what are you seeing that successful organizations are doing to stay on that bleeding edge and to stay adaptive in the midst of the speed of change, right? Sure. And then the second question is kind of more individually, you know, what are some, maybe, you know, some specific executives that have really been able to manage the inundation of demand and information, and been able to filter uh, and become very successful. So um, we want to talk about organizational adaptability and then executive leadership adaptability. So pick one of those and then we can-
1: Sure. Let's the go with the, uh, the first one, the first part first. Uh, I always uh, bring to the table a perspective, which, which is let's start with the answer. So instead of not having a sense of direction, you at least have a sense of where you want to go. And then from there, let's do a snapshot of what you have today. And then doing the analysis of, all right, we now have a gap analysis. So we have to figure out how to be able to get from here to there and the options available to us. I mean, that's essentially um, the architecture of the type of consulting work that I do. Now, getting from here to there may be that, well, we don't have the means to do that relative to what I call the six-factor analysis, which is time, money, people, talent, and will. And the sixth factor is essentially technology. So of those five that I mentioned, the first five, the only thing that can't be replicated, or cannot be obtained is time. So time becomes the major factor. If you want to do something quickly with less time, it usually means that you're going to have to spend more money and get better talent or throw a lot of people at it, which also means you know, spending more money. So this is a measure of what are our objectives, and then what are the resources that we have at hand that or that we can develop to be able to meet that end goal whatever it might be you know and in the context of these uh, these the engagements that i'm usually involved in it really comes down to um, expanding the commercial footprint meaning driving more sales in whatever fashion might it that might be it could be acquisition it could be organically growing then how do we do that we do it on a global basis What nations or regions do we want to enter that we're not in right now? And that can be the perspective of offshore, meaning offshore from the U.S., as a domestic market who are international providers who then want to enter the U.S. market, or conversely, U.S. companies who are looking to expand in other parts of the world, or any international company that wants to become truly global. We could get into the the bits and bytes of what those definitions are, but that's the answer to the first question. The second question, wow, that is a tough question to be able to actually identify an executive who could be the archetype to all of this, the icon
0: to all of this. Um, let me let me add another filter to this. Because, oh, you're
1: going to even make it harder. Is that it? <laughs> no, hopefully it'll fine tune it. So it'll hopefully okay. it'll fine tune it.
0: So some things that, so what we talk about is we talk about mindsets, you know, is there any particular mindsets that, um, have been advantageous for, for maybe people you've worked with in, in addressing being adaptive or filters, uh, because as an executive, you have to filter information, you have to filter and prioritize and deprioritize, um, that so those are two things that come to my yeah. mind.
1: So I'm gonna can I can I choose someone outside of the private sector, the, you know, sure. traditional commercial enterprises, if you will. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Stanley McChrystal. Uh, Stanley McChrystal is a retired four-star general who, during the Obama era,s as well as working for being in the army at the time as a four-star general, he was responsible for the Strategic Operations Command. And the Strategic Operations Command was his last uh, assignment. Uh, He has a great book called Teams of Teams. And it's about leadership that is expanded across wide areas as well as very large management initiatives. Now keep in mind as the head of the Strategic Operations Command, Uh, He was responsible for uh, the Air Force, the Navy SEALs, U.S. Army Green Berets, the entire portfolio of activities. And this was when we were prosecuting the war in Afghanistan and before that when he was in Iraq. And they were managing engagements on a nightly basis, sometimes upwards of 100. And they were consolidating information from across the entire intelligence network of the United States and our allies. All across the world. He had daily meetings that lasted an hour with over a thousand people participating in those meetings. Now, were they all talking for three minutes? No, that would have been impossible. But he was able to put in a structure that allowed him to be able to get that information and have it available to him so that the entire team were essentially snapshotting the information on a day-to-day basis. And be able to progress the progress of the war of the you know the battlefield on a day-by-day basis now how does that apply to the private sector well you know we were talking about earlier before the call uh, before the recording i've run global organizations and had to build out core global organizations from scratch initially inside a startup that got to be what we called a dragon because we kept shedding a skin We kept changing our perspective and changing even the direction that we were heading, you know, hence the term dragons, because they shed skins and get bigger and get bigger. Then they need to shed a skin again. Um, That was why we looked at this and characterized it that way. So in the same respect, being able to have that command and control, but not controlling on a micromanagement level, Um, I always looked at it uh, in the context of eyes on, hands off. So I saw what was going on, but at the same time, I was not involved on in a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. I had a high degree of trust to the people that I had gone off and hired in many cases, and they had a high degree of trust in me. And even the cultural, the cultural aspects of the teams, um, I shifted our calls. And we always had a weekly call and not a daily call, like like General McChrystal did. But my weekly calls. Sometimes I made it convenient for the Europeans and a little bit less convenient for the Americans and a little less convenient for the Asians. And then we would shift to primarily East Coast time. Everybody carried the same burden. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, everyone from literally personal assistants in the offices to my direct reports who were senior vice presidents of the regions had a full understanding of what was going on. So, that we could all understand how we could leverage each other's information, leverage each other's successes, and learn from each other's failures or obstacles. Hence why I chose Stanley the Crystal. And he's got a
0: yeah. great podcast too called um, No Turning Back. No Turning Back. That's fantastic. And the fact that, you know, like I, I think what you outlined and how he managed um, meetings of 1,000 people uh, for over an hour and was able to run so many different operations around the world simultaneously, I think we can all kind of take a note from that. And I really appreciated the the line you used of eyes on, hands off, uh, as well as the high trust component. Um, Absolutely critical to have trust in the people around you and for them to have your trust as well. Uh, Something came to mind when you were speaking, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it if it comes back to my mind here. so, oh, yes, uh, I wanted to get your perspective on this, and it, it maybe it sounds like a grounder, whatever, um, but I had a conversation with someone just the other day, and they were talking about how they've been in business for a long time, and, and they haven't established mission, vision, and values yet. It is just not the high priority. I'm curious from your perspective. That's in, interesting. In a large... <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um... let's continue. <laughs> So I'm curious, from your perspective, when it comes to being an agile, adaptive, innovative organization, like how critical is are the mission, vision, values, or a purpose statement and a value statement? Like how do you I, uh, see those playing?
1: I would say that it's critical. Um, I, I'm, you know, I kind of jumped in there interrupting you, so forgive me about that, relative to that's quite shocking in the context of, again, from my perspective of running global teams, international teams. Um, I've worked with um individuals from many, many different culture ba- cultural backgrounds, regional backgrounds. Um, you know, the commonality was everybody spoke English, but beyond that that wasn't all that much common and and yet we all were rowing in unison relative to the same objectives and goals. Um and that also was reflected in the type of people who um I had the privilege to work with and in many cases I purposely chose as a result of their mindset. And the mindset was one that, you know, what we would refer to as run and gun in the context of, um, you know, back to the military perspective, you know, shoot, uh, what was it? Shoot, run, maneuver. So you shoot, you run to your next movement, then decide decide how, decide how you're going to move or new maneuver to your next point. Um, so that takes, that's a high cadence um, and mm-hmm. some people may not be comfortable with that high cadence um, may not be comfortable with that um, that speed and which you need to execute uh, you know by no means was my communications for example i remember in one role i came into the job and i realized that i was 12 hours of meetings every week and that's where i was like no i can't this is gonna to take too much of my time. So I've gotta be able to restructure the communication channels between me and my team so that it's, it's uh, acceptable to everybody because I didn't want my team to be you know, anchored in meetings on a week to week basis. So we restructured that. That took a little bit more uh, adjustment. So people who are used to wanting to do the same thing all the time didn't really um, fit into the team. It wasn't we ostracized them, it was just after fashion. Um, they just recognized that it wasn 't for them, you know everybody's got different tastes, so yeah, no, no i and that's why I, I like say the mission you know yeah. the mission statement, the values et cetera um and by no means was this um you know like a bro culture because I had in many cases um you know I now can count five women who I hired into vice president roles who are now in large multi-billion dollar entities as VPs. And they worked for me 10, 12 years ago. And even in my own experience, um, my first two bosses in the mobile telecommunications business were women. So, um, you know, and that was just the nature of, I often talk about there, there wasn't training that you could fall into. And so people who were hired for talent, including myself, I didn't have any understanding of the technology basis of mobile telephony, um, but I knew how to sell. And I had a pretty good mm-hmm. understanding of how to be able to look at strategic partnerships, which, as I said earlier, I had a, uh, an earlier career essentially living off of strategic partnerships and alliances.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I've always found values as, you know, it, it's, it's the rally point, right? The mission is, he, here's what we're here to accomplish, and the values are the way we conduct ourselves. Um, and so to, 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 to kind of bump into an organization that has been successful in some right without any of that, um, you know, for me, it was a little surprising. And so I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about it, but values I'm thinking today, as we look at the market today, and I want to ask you your insight into specifically the telecommunications industry, um, and the, and the great resignation we're seeing here in the U S uh, and, and it, and I. I'm really seeing at first I thought it was almost 100% driven by mandates by by vaccine mandates and I've asked some more questions and I've started to look under the hood a little bit and and I'm hearing you know that may have been the impetus but it wasn't the driving decision um, a lot of it has been around I think a revalue a, re, a reorganization of of employees values and I'm curious what are you seeing inside of telecommunications regarding the great resignation um, well, I probably – just in terms of the telco space. So
1: because people have been staying home, there are now emerging use cases that didn't exist before. Um, and that's driving specifically in the messaging space and the CPaaS space a much higher engagement rate and a much higher usage rate. And the engagement rate is essentially not only the consumer basis – but also enterprises realizing that they can do so much more um, with this particular particular technology. Um, I don't think that the the seeds of the Great Resignation do not exist in the me- the in my view in the um, vaccination mandates because all of that was going on prior to the emergence of vaccines, meaning we were already staying at home. And by staying at home, there was already a shift occurring. I mean, you can look at even uh, Zoom performance and Zoom utilization rates spiked very quickly, you know, relatively quickly. And I say within probably two months. Of people being forced to stay home because it got adopted um, so quickly, people saw this great opportunity in terms or this great technology that made their lives so much more convenient, which is really the epicenter of telecommunications you know we don 't need to be sending text to each other or long letters, I should say, um, like we used to two hundred years ago and when then we started using voice. And now we've got voice and video and text and everything else, which kind of flows into my space, the CPAS space that I'm familiar with. So I, I'm I'm not sure that, that the seeds were probably planted prior to the availability of the vaccines. And then it is a reevaluation because people get um, accustomed to this change that they are living through, that we're all living through now. And, mm. you know, that also drove – higher consumption rates, meaning people were now all of a sudden buying all types of lighting for Zoom calls and new types (laughs) of cameras and even upgrading their phones and upgrading their their Wi-Fi, including myself, um, so that it would be able to um, be bulletproof relative to the type of connectivity that I was seeking. So all of that are ripple effects of what's occurred during the pandemic. I think again personally, um, where some are talking about returning to the status quo ante if you will prior to the changes. Um, I think that is a ridiculous, um, thoughtless perspective because and i 'm you know forgive me if i 'm being harsh, but the reality is, as human beings, if we find something that we like to do that 's more convenient. We don't go back to the more inconvenient ways; we stick with the new stuff and discard the old stuff. Hence, planned obsolescence. Um, you know that's why we don't have buggy whips any longer.
0: So, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to develop because um, we did a we did a research project for a local economic development um, uh, in a, here in our county, mm-hmm. and one of the things we discovered is that uh, what we we kind of foresaw this was towards the um, towards the end of last year was that with the access to video and the, the fact that that was proven to be successful for specific roles um, you know corporate was very very skeptical of of letting people work from home mm-hmm. and and questioned whether they could be productive and successful well this you know this crisis really proved, some people could be absolutely successful in a remote role. And it opens a completely new dimension to, to labor, to work, to the workforce. Yeah. Because now you no longer, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have to scope your talent within a driving commuting distance. You can scope your talent around the world. And, and other companies were doing this before, but previously like kind of old school entrenched companies kind of got forced to do this. But one of the limiting factors was not every employee had access to high-speed yes. broadband internet. Yeah. Okay. And we just got the signing of the infrastructure bill. Uh, that just con- that just literally dropped, I think, yesterday. And so, um, Paul, maybe you could speak to – I don't know. I haven't read the infrastructure bill. I don't know if there's anything into it regarding telecommunications. Oh, there is.
1: In fact, I, and interestingly enough, I've got a friend who's actually in – there is a private public sector entity. Um, I can't remember the exact. UCAS might be. But it's essentially um, – the arm of the federal government that implements the mandates from the Federal Communications Commission. And what we, part of the um, the infrastructure bill includes, I think it's about $2 billion plus targeting Wi-Fi and uh, broadband into rural America and the needs for that. And the the ripple effects that will come from that, as well as in in also, let's say, unconnected urban areas as well that needs Mm to be um, populated and electrified and turned on. Um, You know, that's one of the things that Again, having done business globally, I remember going into Korea uh, for the first time, which was around 1999, and the amount of interconnectivity that they had even then was just shocking to me in the context because it would become – it was a pure governmental uh, policy mandate as well as how their economy works with what these entities called balls are, which is essentially large global conglomerates, i.e. Samsung. So. Mm -hmm. All of that is pushed through the economy very, very quickly as opposed to how we do it in this country. And even today, we still don't have the type of connectivity both in the speeds and the reach that um, other com- countries have. You know, In some cases, it's very small. Like in Singapore, it's a little different when talking about the size of the United States. But other areas, like as I say, which, uh, South Korea is about the size of California. And it, it's just like in your face how fast the speeds are and that needs to be implemented across you know the United States as reflecting of our status as a global entity in a global economy and then we will have the benefits accruing from that i mean even today if you start talking to you know again from my own distant, distant background. I once ran a congressional race in rural Iowa. It was one of the most agriculturally heavy um, economic areas in the country. Uh, and this was in a place called Waterloo, Iowa, and it runs up to Mason City, um, Iowa, et cetera. So it's about the spine of of Iowa. And once you see how those mechanized agriculture works, agriculture, uh, you know, industri- industrial agriculture works, uh, especially now, all those things have to be implemented so that these farms can be higher, can be much more productive and than they are even today because of the implementation of such things as GPS and other types of you know, interconnectivity that's required that's going to flow through hopefully as a result of the infrastructure bill and the focus on that kind of uh, activity in terms of broadband expansion.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm really curious to see. I I don't know how long it'll be two, three, five years, but as um you know the funds for this infrastructure bill come out and we see more people connected um you know globally because once you're on broadband you're you're connected to the world and that's going to shift I think a lot of for a lot of organizations where they source their labor um, and I can imagine a lot of organizations right now are in this kind of process where they're deciding hey are we going to be an in-person corporate company are we going to be a hybrid or are we going to be a completely distributed company yeah and uh, I, maybe you're having some of those conversations that help no industry.
1: as, as recently as yesterday I was talking to an executive in a company that um, she was relaying to me that we are a, a completely virtual company. Um, And I was like, well, okay, Um, But at some point, you've got to at least have a corporate entity someplace. Um, And is this something that you started off, that you were a trend center, or you've just shifted? Um, And her perspective was, no, we've shifted as a result of the changes. But even companies – I remember reading about this um, early on in the lockdown – Uh, Maybe a quarter into it or so, perhaps last year, um, Siemens, which is a a huge German-based technology company, has essentially moved away from the established uh, brick-and-mortar offices that we've all lived with to the point where they are selling off that space. And it's affecting, you know, the relative value of commercial real estate markets in places like in Germany and where they have a, a large presence to Almost a completely optional work from home functionality. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just the you know the camel under the camel's nose under the tent. Um, I think that's that's going to have we're going to have some changes as a result of everything that's been going on, both good and yeah. bad.
0: Yeah. Hey, so uh, let me let me. Pink, one more kind of broad question and then I want to kind of give you an, an opportunity to kind of share with our listeners the kind of work you do um, in the market today so the last broad question there might be some follow-ups to this is you've got a long-term background in sales I'm kind of curious what's your perspective on given this new kind of environment this new climate we're in with digital access is there still going to be particularly long long line cycle long cycle high ticket um, uh, whether they be, services or products, are we still going to see in-person sales conversations or is that going to go move all virtual?
1: I don't think it's going to go all virtual, um, even in the context of a little gem that I used to say uh, when I was, you know, years, let's say above in the last 10 years prior to the pandemic was, if you want to know, you've got to go, bottom line. Now I was in global entities, and uh, that was just part of the routine. It wasn't a secondary question as, well, it's going to take me, you know, two days to get there and I'm going to have to sit in front of it. Yeah. Okay. You know, I literally had a, the head of sales once in a global entity tell me, all right, Paul, you're running this show here. You need to go park yourself in the lobby in Manila to be able to have that conversation and close that deal. <laughs> you know, and I I, I turned, you know, you know, we were peers and I turned back to the head of sales and I was like um you know inside manila inside this particular building there are two guys with shotguns so i'm not going to be sitting around all day long in the lobby the bottom line is that at some point back to the human factor that comes into play it, you know another story that i have is um i once closed a deal with singtel which is one of the largest uh telecommunications conglomerates in the world even though it's Sing- singapore small island nation of about 5 million people, pump, it uh, punches above its weight class. It's about the seventh largest telecommunications conglomerate in the world because so much traffic goes through Singapore. And again, um, this was in a startup. We were about a year in. We were starting to grow. We are starting to get some decent customers. And we closed the deal. I closed the deal with Singtel. And I was there. And I asked the guy, okay. So I asked the guy who I had been seeing almost every other month, for about eight months, because I purposely went back to him each time, giving him updates, telling him, Yes, we're still very interested in you coming on as a customer. Here's information that you might be able to learn from based on the other things that we're seeing in terms of traffic. And I asked him, After he, he said, Yes, we want to go with you. I was like, Great. Okay, so let me ask you this Why did you choose us? And he said, Because you're here. First off, you're in a startup and i understand the dynamics of a start this is uh his name was johnny yang and johnny was kind of like i understand the dynamics of the of a startup but the fact that you are here means that up to your board probably you are getting the approval make these trips, which means you're not as startup as you may think you are. You're probably more along the lines of a fledgling company. So that was his perception just by me being there. His second comment was, plus your competitors always call me up in the middle of the night wanting to have conversations. At least you're here. It's the daytime. You undertook that and you made the effort to have this continuing relationship, even though I kept telling you, thank you. But we're not interested right now so that per, that proved the persistence of what you've been offering to us and you've also been telling me educating me along the way relative to the value proposition so he's like so paul from my perspective this was a very clear and easy decision i'm like okay <laughs> um you know, yeah uh, excuse me thanks for that <clears throat> and bottom line um these things aren't just going to disappear you know, um, goes back to the human factor relative to all of this. And even back to the values basis relative to all yeah. this, because at some point, um, you know, I've I've used this term in the past, you know, it's going to be like the souk, you know, which are the markets in the Middle East, as you sit down. And part of that dynamic is the joy. Uh, I mean, you know, you tell me, um, this, this may sound very sexist, but- both my wife, my mother, my sisters, my female friends, et cetera. Even in some cases, my colleagues where I was like, okay, I'll go to lunch, but we can have this discussion. But I want to go shopping at the mall while we're there. I'm like, okay. So the point being is we like the human interaction. Both male and female like to look at stuff to think, oh, maybe I should buy this for wife, spouse, partner, whatever it might be, or just for the personal um the personal joy out of looking and seeing and experiencing what life is constituted of meeting other people having conversations i mean i'll say this i don't know if you've ever heard of lunch club if you haven't heard of lunch club you should check it out and i'd be happy to make an introduction to you it's a like linkedin but it's personal conversations with people all around the world. It's almost like a dating site, but it's not a dating site at at all. It's very professional, um, high high achievers in the context of anybody can join as long as you have somebody introducing yourself to. Mm -hmm. And um, that dynamic, I joined during the heart of the pandemic. I was introduced to it by a friend of mine. And that experience to me was kind of like, all right, You know, I've got a gift of gab. I know how to be able to spend 19 hours in a middle seat going to Singapore, all of that. You got to be able to at least play nice, et cetera. But at the same time, when you're home all the time and, you know, your, your spheres of influence and spheres of interaction have shrunk down to maybe five to seven people. In fact, Greg, I think I'm going to go back to one of the podcasts I listened to you where you were talking about what was the seven connections that um comprise yes. your your yes. field of influence or I'm you know forgive me I'm if I'm misusing the wrong terminology but that point being that if you get to that level you want to still have a number of opportunities to talk to other people so literally three times a week i spend 40 minutes talking to somebody from that the algorithm presents and it's not you're not choosing them i don't get to choose greg ballard it's ah. presented to me as would you like to meet somebody like Greg Ballard, famous podcast host, who looks at um, how executives have to adapt to strategy as well as their change in the organization structure? Yes. No. You know, now, in some cases, I've actually been paired up. A lot. In one case, it was a, uh, a woman who was a doula, a midwife. You know and I, we were both kind of like, well, this is interesting, you know <laughs> so the algorithm saw some commonality between the two of us, and eventually we've, we discovered what that commonality was. And ironically, it was politics because she on ah. her background was a former um, you know she had been involved in in public service, et cetera. and so somehow that also got picked up on my background. That's what we were assuming, yeah, because everything yeah, yeah. else was all about technology and startups and ventures and you know, all the other stuff that we're all chasing around like cheese, mice after cheese. But in her case, it was much more personable. And she was from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I knew where she was from. Um, you know, and so you have this opportunity to meet with a whole bunch of other people. And meanwhile, I've also talked to somebody who ironically, we had common connections But in our backgrounds, there was no common connection. One person, uh, which was elicited from a conversation, which was, how did you get into consulting? And he's like, well, you know, I, I went to MIT and I had a great professor. Just so happened he was from New Zealand. And I was like, hold on a second. Was he a telecoms expert? And he's like, how do you know that? I was like, you're talking about Michael Davies. And I'm like, now, why did I do that. You know? He was like, You're, how do you know this? You know? I was like, look, I have one person I know at MIT who's a professor, who's a telecoms guy, who is from Michael Davies. So it was easy to just throw that out there to see if there's that common connection. And uh-huh. there was. So that's what Lunch Club is all about. And I'd be happy to make that, that introduction true. to you.
0: Yeah. I would be really, really excited to check that out. That, that, that fits my vibe yeah. Very, very much. Very, yeah. Very. And it, it, it now th- this touches on a couple things, and we'll we'll begin to wrap up our, our conversation here today. Um, one is this aspect of community and connecting human to human, and how people are going to go about that process post pandemic. You know, in light of the fact that more people are comfortable doing video uh, prior to pandemic, if you weren't in a in a community. Where video Zoom calls were normal, or FaceTiming was normal, that was a little maybe off-putting. It may mm-hmm. be a little forward to assume somebody would do a video call. Now it is—it's been completely normalized, and and so I'm kind of curious to see how how this progresses because yeah. there's going to be a human factor. Some things, like when I shop for clothing, I like to actually put it on. Right. All right. Especially if it's a new brand, uh, a new a new you know, a new brand that I haven't worn their clothes before. I like to try to fit on. Then I can buy online all I want because I know what fits and I can mm-hmm. just decide if I like it with people. I like to handshake and look eye to eye and right. read all the body language and kind of see what uh part in, but the, the, how they their energetic presence, what's their presence. Yeah. And I get a lot of input. Absolutely. There.
1: That, okay. back To engendering trust. Absolutely. Part of that part of that trust factor is reading each other um, walking away understanding yeah I can trust this guy you know back in the old days let's say 150 200 years ago word is your bond and your handshake is is mm-hmm. your word so um, I don't think that's going to change um, there are still these human factors that we are talking about. Just look at what happened after the lockdown was started to be relaxed, if you will. Hordes of people were getting out because they needed to get out. Now it changes relative to your demographic, meaning your age, income, where you might live, etc. cetera. But that was a common phenomenon all around the world. That's a reflection of some base uh, behaviors that we all have as human beings. Um, so I, I'm, I don't think virtual selling is going to become a hundred percent the norm, Um, you know, back to it's an easy, no, you know, well, Reality back to selling, and if you've been involved in hardcore sales, not manipulative sales, but engendering trust, providing value, providing um, direction to your customer, that's how I look at sales. You know, it's not about me claiming all the value on the table. It's a mutual exchange. Um, That comes down to trust, and that comes down to that face-to-face factor. And it's a lot more fun, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to become more difficult because I think some yeah. high-level executives are going to say, "Hey, listen, I can, I can manage my time a lot more now. I'm not in the office. You know, I can work from anywhere. I can manage my team virtually because those relationships are established. So I think getting access to those potential yeah. buyers is going to become more challenging.
1: Um, yeah, I'll give you that, but at the same time. When those executives, unless they're they're in a perfect world, if they – let's say if you're in the process of going on a roadshow because you're now at a stage where um, you are trying to raise money and do an IPO, um, Mm -hmm. I doubt very much that the guys who are running family offices and investment houses all around the world are like, sure, we'll do it on a pure um, pure, uh, Zoom call. Right. I just don't right. buy that um, right. because at some point somebody's like, look, I'm about to, you know, whether it's an individual or whether it's an institution, you know, I'm willing to make a $10 million investment in you that I'm going to buy into the fund when you do the IPO. Yes, we'll do that. Um, let's go beyond that. Or a $100 million investment, somebody's going to say, I want to see him or her. I want to see them. Uh, Let's see how they operate because I've been in a couple of roadshows where it was clear the CEO was not performing as well as some of the supporting staff. And that became, uh, oh, well, at least we know that the the B team is better than the A team.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. And
1: that became a differentiator. Yeah, we'd be willing to do that. That's okay. CEO didn't do real well, but those other guys, that guy who's the VP of Product Development, man, he was a star. He is a star coming. <gasps> so that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. Hey, so let's, um, let's wrap up here, Paul. You, if you have a... Um... A thought or a tip for our listeners on how they can, you know, uh, adapt a mindset of of adaptability or a framework. I'd love to hear it. And then also love to hear about the work you're doing and the kind of clients you're working with as well.
1: Yeah. Framework, um, you know, back to the beginning where I said, start with the answer. That's essentially deciding where you want to be, because this is all about strategy and planning, and then benchmark where you are today. Uh, and then figure out what the gap is and how to be able to fill that gap, and that becomes not only the options, the plans, and more importantly, the execution. And ideas are nice, but execution is everything. You know, it's like uh, um, thunder's impressive, but lightning does the work. Okay. <laughs>
0: I love that. I've never yeah.
1: heard that before. Well, I'll tell you, I stole it from a surfboard company about 40 years ago because I literally, my wife gave me a t-shirt that it was from lightning surfboards, but they don't uh-huh. exist any longer. But that motto, I remember that uh-huh. to this day. Uh, and then the last, the other piece that I also often link those two together, which is fortune favors the audacious. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're not going to be getting ahead by deciding that let's stay within our risk tolerance here. You've got to take mm-hmm. a chance. You've got to, you know, look at what the opportunity is because all of life is a risk. You can't, you know, in my book, you can't eliminate all risks. You can mitigate risks, but you can't mm-hmm. eliminate all risks. So that's the, um, the pearl that you were looking for at the beginning. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then relative to what I do, you know, my um, my consulting practice is open to any technology company that is looking to be able to get to the next level um, because of the nature of the space that I've been involved in, going through either developing dragons, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of that metaphor, or taking a company global from the start, or shepherding and guiding a company from um, a, a domestic proposition to an international proposition to a truly global proposition, that's what I do. And I help provide companies with options as well as plans and then help them execute on it. Uh, I'm not one of these ivory tower guys that says, this is what you need to do. And then the plan is left on a shelf for the next year, two years with no one ever executing against it. And you can find me uh, online. Uh, The best opportunity there is probably LinkedIn, which we all utilize very heavily. Um, Or you can just drop me an email at prupert, that's R-U-P-P-E-R-T, at G. GPVLTD.com, or you can go to my website, which is
0: globalpointview.com. Excellent. Thank you for including those. We'll add those to the show notes so our listeners can find them. Uh, Paul, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could keep going for a while, but uh, it's really been great to have you here. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again, Greg, to both your listeners as well as to yourself for
1: the invitation. I've had a, a wild time. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Adaptive Executive Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on LinkedIn and by subscribing to our mailing list. Again, my name is Greg Ballard, and thank you for listening.